there's no like, okay, I'm going to go hella skiing in Alaska. And then once I do that, now I've reached my pinnacle. Like, no, like I can do other stuff after that. You know, it's a great milestone, but you know, I think people searching for this like end to finally be happy and nothing else will happen. Like it, it, those aren't real, you know? Yeah, it's the same with touring, right? It's like there's there's these points, um, or there has been these points in my career where I'm like doing just grinding really hard, right? Like flights every day, sleeping in you know on couches and in hotels and on friends, you know, floors and shit like that. Um, and you know, there's this thing in my head that's like, oh, I just have to grind like this a little longer, and then you know, touring, right. uh, touring will be sick after that. And then it's like, no, man, it's not gonna get. It's it's only gonna get harder. Like the the that's the fucking crazy thing about music. It's like the better you get at it, the less music you make. Yeah. So like, assuming that you go the route that most musicians do, which is live shows, it's like the the secret level that you unlocked is being hung over in an airport. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, editor-in-chief of the Unst.com and Bill's manager. As a reminder, I do the intros to his podcast so that he can spend more time baking pastries. It's just the arrangement at which we've arrived. Bill's guest this week is Alex Hutchinson, a longtime friend of Bill's and his former agent. I've known Hutch for nearly a decade. He's done a lot of stuff in and around the music industry, including stage managing, tour managing for Beats Antique, and he's also a guitarist and performer himself. He's the founder of our online book club, so drop us a line if you're curious in joining us. I'm totally dead serious about this. We're reading Aldous Huxley's classic Brave New World this month. Thanks to everyone who's been rating the show and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcatcher they use. It really helps people find the show. Please join the Patreon to get early access to episodes, bonus content, and full video of every podcast. It helps keep the lights on. If anyone is all about the blockchain-backed, artist-friendly streaming platform, Audius, Bill just uploaded 184 songs to his profile, so please go give him a follow and listen to his music on there so we can become crypto millionaires and start doing evil genius shit like sending a mountain bike to Mars or something like that. Finally, head over to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore Abletoneer. Bill has added a new micro-tutorial feed, and he's been dumping a ton of great content in there. Fans seem to really be loving this new HCA feed, so get on there if you've never been a user or if it's been a while since you logged in. All right, enjoy Bill's chat with Alex Hutchinson. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 No, I'm getting stereo. Okay, cool. Sick. Yeah. Sick. All right. Well, yeah, I'm recording. Sick. Yeah, it's good. Good to chat, man. Yeah, I, I kind of just wanted to chat to you anyway. So uh, yeah, it's like good to make a podcast out of it, I guess. Nice. <clears throat> um, I guess like we should introduce you though, because uh, people actually 
to be honest, by this point of the podcast, like Anand would have already introduced you. So people oh, right. would probably know who you are anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm Alex. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, what's what's going on? Because I'm, uh, I haven't really talked to you a lot since you stopped being an agent. Yes. Uh, um, like live sound stuff and whatnot, and you moved uh, out into the woods and like. <laughs> yeah. So I've had uh, quite a change in my lifestyle. Um, yeah, I think we're at the point, Bill, where like you know I I reached out to you because like felt like the biannual mr bill and alex like <laughs> catch up at this point you know where we're just like hey like you still good all right cool <laughs> um but yeah i guess uh well i stopped being an agent officially um in like 2017 i want to say something like that and um yeah the reason was because pretty much you know like unhappiness and lifestyle and stuff like that you know um burnt out on the business side of of music and you know the usual stuff i would say um i think uh yeah and i got into live sound and uh event production in general which was actually like the beginning of my career before i became an agent and then i sort of had this like five year or more like um avenue of like being an agent and ended up hating it and doing it for way too long and then getting back into this like live production thing, which I, I actually love, um, you know, live sound is incredible, uh, learning all the tech stuff and just building stuff. Like even when I do staging, even though staging is a bitch, cause it's like really hard and grueling work. Um, yeah, it's a construction at that point, right? Yeah. It's just like putting together a stage made of steel. Um, you know, Sounds it's heavy like construction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's awesome. It's like hands-on and I don't know that stuff like makes sense to me. Being an agent was very like, you know, I had this idea the, uh, like a while ago that was like, agents are so, I shouldn't, say, <laughs> I should watch my tongue on this podcast, but agents are so useless really. As far as like, I mean, maybe some are like great and do awesome things for people's career. And that's very true. But like, like they don't know how to do anything. Like if they showed up at a concert and they were like, okay, like you're at a concert, like we need to make this stuff work. Like they wouldn't know how to do anything. Yeah. But I mean, it's a different facet of the, Definitely. Of the whole machine, right? Cause it's like, yeah. From my perspective, like, I don't know how to put together a stage and I don't know how to like write up a fucking contract that makes any sense or anything like that. Um, but they're both things that need to happen for the show to happen, right? But also a thing that needs to happen yeah. for the show to happen is somebody who knows how to DJ and write music, which is the stuff that I do know how to do. So it's just, I don't know, like, <clears throat> I think it's like useful to know all the things, but I think without any one of the parts, the music industry just wouldn't work. Yeah, no, I agree. And like, I, you know, like I said before, there are some amazing people on that side of it. Um, but I think, you know, internally I felt useless. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, I don't know. I feel like I'm just smooching people and sending emails and making phone calls and stressed out 90% of my day. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I remember staying with you a few times in New York when you were living there and you were just like constantly on the phone or emailing and like way yeah. on, on the phone, like way too much. Uh, 
I, I could never be an agent purely for the fact that I fucking hate talking on the phone, which is weird that I run a podcast now because it's yeah. essentially talking on the phone. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a lot of phone calls. What What was the, like, I guess to, to like let, uh, like give people the picture of like where you were at, you went from <clears throat> doing live sound and stuff to becoming an agent and then you were, um, you were on AM only, which is, uh, the agency that houses like Skrillex and Boys Noise and all that shit, and you were um, an agent for Cohen Sound and Toki Monster and Truth uh, and me and a bunch of other people, right? Yeah, um, yeah. My uh, career as an agent was interesting for sure um, <laughs> because it kind of like blew up really quickly, and I think that led to being burnt out really quickly. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I started in Minneapolis at hello booking. Uh, it was super random. It's a very small boutique agency. It's actually where you and I started working together. Um, and it was kind of random. It was sort of like college was over. Um, you know, I had these production gigs. I was, I was interested in the business side of it. Um, and, um, I actually was just reaching out to companies everywhere just as like, Hey, whatever, let's do something, you know, and hello booking got back to me with an offer pretty much right away. And I just took it because I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, <clears throat> because agency, the agent side and slash management side of things interested me, uh, because like developing an artist and stuff interested me. Um, and then I met Lee Anderson from AM only at, some industry events and he actually hit me up directly and was just like, yeah, we're interested in bringing you on. And that turned into an offer. And so that's where AM only started. And I actually, you were the only act I brought over there. Yeah. I remember uh, when that transition happened, there was a lot of people who were pissed off <clears throat> agent and they wouldn't, yeah. AM only just wouldn't let you bring your entire roster. Yeah. Like, wait, you're trying to bring a bunch of wooks that make 200 bucks a month over here? Get out of here. <laughs> we don't need that paperwork. That's pretty much what happened. And yeah, some people were unhappy with me that I couldn't bring them. Some people didn't really care. Um, that's the thing about this music industry is like people, you know, sometimes you just can't make everyone happy. It is what it is. Um, I feel like the agent game as well, it's just like, uh what's the word for it it's like very just all over the place it's like chaos like, Dude. I've, I've lost uh so i've never fired an agent but i've lost like three or four agents <laughs> all of them quitting being an agent basically like for, um when you quit being an agent and you passed me on to tynan at madison house well, yeah he, he also quit being an agent now as well. really yeah. i didn't know that yeah he's a manager now uh, oh he like stayed in the business side he just he he said he like always wanted to be a manager but uh, I guess like COVID happening just like f kind of pushed him to do that quicker. I think he was on like a contract with Madison House that lasted X amount of years and huh. um, and COVID sort of like nulled the contract. So he was just like, all right, I'm just going to do the thing I wanted to do. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And like, yeah, it's a lot of chaos and it's a chaos within the agency too. And make no mistake, the professional agencies like paradigm slash am only where I work and stuff are just as chaotic, <laughs> you know, like they might have this facade of like, Hey, we have everything together, but like, <laughs> it is not the case. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> when you think about it, like, um, on the agent side of things, 
the whole sort of goal is to take this take the stress off dealing with like all of these um like really unreliable promoters essentially i mean i guess like once you get to a certain level promoters become reliable and if they're not then they just get weeded out of the industry pretty quick yeah but there's a level i think where you know it's not super abnormal to have to probably chase a promoter for weeks to get money out of them right right yeah so like job kind of like falls on you as as the agent at some point yeah and like the agent i mean you know Mm -hmm to get into a textbook definition, like is the person who gets the talent jobs, right. And you know, their money, like the manager can do some of that, but they really like oversee accounting for the money and stuff like that, rather than like proactively getting the jobs. Um, then you get to like, you know, as an artist, like you reach a point for like mega artists, like Taylor Swift and Paul McCartney and stuff like none of them have agents. You know, like Roger Waters. Yeah. He doesn't, they don't have agents because they get to a point where like, you know, they can call Paul Tillette from golden voice and just be like, Hey, I want to do a show, like set it up. Who's Paul Tillette from golden. Um, he's the, uh, he's the golden voice, uh, founder. So they do like Coachella and like a lot of stuff in LA, but an example of, uh, you know, in that case is Paul Tillette, not then the agent. No, there technically would be no agent. Um, there would be a deal between, you know, Taylor's, there would be a contract from somebody of, you know, making like, you know, a contract between parties of like Taylor Swift's management and like, you know, Golden Voice or whatever. But then isn't um, it like her management is just acting as her agent? Sort of, yeah. But they do have to like split hairs because I guess, um, in certain States specifically California, New York, it's illegal to be a manager and an agent for some reason. I actually don't know why either. Someone could probably industry or no, it's, uh, I actually think it is more involved in the movie and actor industry and, but it like, you know, it translated over to the music industry as well. Um, that's strange. Yeah, I never knew about that. So, so long as her management company is not in California or New York, then it would be fine. Yeah. Weird. But I mean, I guess like either way, for all intents and purposes, they're taking on the job of what a manager and agent would do. That is not right. the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Where are you, by the way? I see a bunch of gridiron helmets in the background and like a bunch of... Oh, yeah. I'm in, a, <laughs> I'm in my, uh, my store. So, uh, you know, due to COVID not doing live sound right now. So, uh, Mount snow, I'm managing their, uh, their, one of their retail shops for, uh, for the winter while I lay low. Normally Mount snow would be uh, a place where I do sound at their nightclub, the snow barn and do like all their, uh, outdoor events, um, and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, not a thing right now. Wait, so it's possible that during this podcast, someone might walk in and buy a gridiron helmet? No, it's closed right now. <laughs> that would be an awesome thing to happen during the podcast, though. <laughs> dude, I needed a gridiron helmet for my podcast with Richard Devine. Uh, he yeah, told- dude. So what happened with that? I, I actually just saw your posts about it and haven't listened to that podcast yet. Oh, mainly because I was scared 
about listening to that story? <laughs> it's not until right at the end, about, okay. about 40 minutes into it. Um, basically, if you don't want to listen to that story, I go like, hey, man, so I heard uh, from Dave Tipper that you had a heart surgery too. Tell me that story. And then you can just turn it off then if you want. Okay. <laughs> so it's, um, uh, it's just like a crazy heart surgery story, basically, where like, yeah, he just, it's just really brutal. He basically got a staph infection and then uh, didn't get that treated for like a week and a half or something like that. And then uh, that brought on like a congenital heart defect that he had from, I guess, just birth, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> And then he just ended up in intensive care and just had to go through a series of like really chronically bad surgeries that he described in detail. Damn. And um, yeah, it just made me real queasy and I passed out and cracked my head open. Yeah. I think that's actually why I hit you up. <laughs> and I was like, hey man, you all good? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was fine. Hey, uh, YouTube. Like, so my computer's right here and my cat gets off my table this way and quite often turns my computer off nice pretty annoying uh yeah i was fine like later that night um after i like just went and got staples and stuff but yeah it was just like a <laughs> it was definitely a weird thing to happen <clears throat> so was he like on the other i mean i guess you know we don't need to do recap of that podcast but <laughs> was yeah. he on the uh on the other side like hey bill hey no okay? he, he just kept telling his story and uh, I think he was just like trying to be professional and like plow through it and like keep the podcast going sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> wow. And I don't, and I don't think he like fully realized that I had just like passed out. Right. So, and then it, it took me basically like passing out for two minutes and then like going to get a towel from the bathroom and like, you know, holding it on my head and like going and laying on my bed for a few minutes and then like coming back and being like, Oh man, I got to go. I cracked my head open. And then he was like, Oh shit. I didn't like, I had no idea. Right. He probably didn't know the severity of it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he really understood like what was going on. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty weird thing to assume, right? Like if you just like went out of frame right now on the video, I probably wouldn't be like, oh, Alex just like passed out and cracked his head open. I'd be like, oh, right. maybe he's like plugging something in under the desk or something. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> Man, crazy. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. Um, so, yeah, how's, you're, you're up in Vermont, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm up in Vermont. Um, yeah, I guess that's another change in my life, you know, lifestyle change. I think overall, I needed a lifestyle change, you know. I think we actually, you were someone who hated New York City when I was trying to convince myself I loved it. Dude, <laughs> and every, you were like, time I would go there, I would just be like, staying like I stayed on your couch once in a house that you lived with like three or four people who you just didn't know and just met on Craigslist and shit. And I was like, yeah. this is like the worst vibe. Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nuts there. And it's like, I mean, it's great in a way, but I really hated living there. And, you know, Vermont is just like, it's an awesome place, especially if I'm on the road a <laughs> lot in the summer and doing sound to like come back here. And, you know, I can't imagine doing live sound and going on tour and then coming home to an apartment in Brooklyn, I'd be like, wow, this is fucking a mess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it depends, right? Like I live in an apartment now in San Francisco right? and I love it. It's awesome, but I live by myself. So it's like, right. It's just yeah. like I have a big bedroom here that I have like a studio and a bed and a shit. And it's like plenty enough space for me. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and I think like, you know, I couldn't afford that 
I I was like a first year agent at AM only, you know? So like, I just didn't have the money for that kind of lifestyle in Brooklyn and like moving to Vermont. I have like a, a like pretty sick one bedroom house and like, you know, it's like really set up and a beautiful location. And I don't know, like the price of what I would pay for a room in an apartment with strangers in Brooklyn. Yeah, totally. And was there any option with AM only to not live in Brooklyn basically, or did you have, I could live in California, but I mean, like there was technically remote options, but like, as far as they were concerned with like where I was at in my career, like they were telling me where I was going to be, you know, like it was, it was more along those lines of our relationship. Um, like I needed to be in New York and working out with Lee Anderson. Like that was the deal. Hmm. And why, why do you think it was that he wanted to get you on in the first place? Um, I think we just, um, we should explain that Lee Anderson is Skrillex's agent. Yes. So Lee Anderson is Skrillex's agent as well as Disclosure, Zed. Um, I mean, we could probably look up his roster. Like there, there's some other big names, but um, I guess that, you know, that that's enough. Right. Um, Yeah. So me and Lee just hit it off uh, at some event, like industry events, like I said, you know, like, Um, and I knew who he was and, um, I actually, uh, had talked to him when Skrillex was kind of like getting big about bringing him to a show at the university of Montana when I was working there as like in the student sort of like concert production classes, you know? Um, and so he knew me from that and. I don't know. We just, we just like hit it off talking and I told him what I was up to and what I was doing and sort of what my ideas were. And I think the biggest thing Lee wanted from me actually was to get his foot in the door in the Wook festivals, as he would put it a little bit more. Oh, really? um, Interesting. For which? Yeah. Uh, for the agency in general, because I think they were having problems with, um, breaking through to that level of promoter because those promoters kind of didn't want to deal with, you know, like Skrillex really wants to play lightning in a bottle, probably still today. But yeah. like do lab was like, we don't, we don't want that name on our, you know, they didn't want to deal with these agents. They, they were like happy dealing with like the guys they, they knew even Madison house and stuff. Cause it was a little chiller and you know, it's a Wook festival. You're, they're not going to like respond the way AM only wants them to respond, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, I think he wanted someone that was like a friendly face to these guys kind of like get the foot in the door a little bit more and sort of earn some leverage over them more or less. Um, I feel like that's kind of the, the whole business side of the music industry. Hey, it's like trying to just like weasel your way into all sorts yeah. of shit. Yeah, pretty much. And, um, yeah. And I think he also, I think they were desperate. Like he was kind of like growing so much and he has like a team. Um, so these big agents at these agencies like Lee Anderson or, um, man, I don't even (laughs) Marty diamond, like trying to think of some other names, but these agents will have like teams, right. Where like technically Lee has probably on paper, like, uh, like, 
hundreds of clients possibly, you know, Marty diamond probably on paper has hundreds of clients, but really he's not doing the work for a lot of them. Right. Yeah. He's like kind of a, a bigger, like project manager for the Yeah. And he'll work, you know, on like the bigger acts for sure. Mm -hmm. And the little acts he'll come on if like some muscle is needed or something somewhere, or like, let's say one day, like one of his acts blows up because of a YouTube video that has a billion plays out of nowhere or something, then he'll step in probably. But, um, they kind of build out these teams. Um, and so I think like they were desperate for some, for another person to be added to his team. And so he hit me up about that. Mm. So one, one question I get like asked constantly, um, by producers, <clears throat> not so much in the last year cause shows haven't been a thing, but usually, uh, I just constantly get asked like, Oh man, how do I get an agent? How do I start doing shows? And like, how do I sort of just make my first move in that direction? Um, yeah. I never know what to tell them. Cause I'm always like, I don't know, man, I just like sat at home and made tunes and then like shit just started happening eventually. And it took like, you know, a solid five or six years of me sitting at home making tunes before any of that shit started happening. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I would, I would recommend that. I mean, not really, but like, it's, it's hard. It's a hard question to answer because it's one of those things like for, for my end, what I get asked more is like from college students or something that are like, Oh, like, how do I become an agent? Or like, how did, how did you get the opportunities that you got? And like, it's almost like if you ask that question, it probably won't happen for you. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to sound mean, but it, it's, it's sort like, of, you're thinking about like the wrong shit, maybe. Yeah. It's like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna follow my path or you're not gonna follow Bill's path. You know, like you're going to carve your own path. And if you are like, I don't know. I, it's, it's also like, I struggle with this idea about the music industry nowadays with like, you know, everybody that is asking that question to you probably wants to be like a fist pumping. Well, not really. Cause you have smarter producers asking you, but you know, like they want to be playing in front of a huge crowd that knows their stuff. Um, an agent isn't going to be able to create that crowd. Like only they are. You know, like the agents just kind of there to like manage it once it's there. Yeah. Cause like that would be the thing as an agent when I was like coming up with like smaller acts, like specifically when I was at Surefire and Hello Booking with like acts that didn't sell as many tickets, is like people would get pissed. Like acts would be like, dude, like my show didn't sell any tickets. What the hell? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I got you the show and I got you the money. Like, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I'm not in control of like, and I would do, I'm a more, I was a more proactive agent than a lot with marketing as well. Um, but still like, you know, what they're really asking isn't how do I get an agent? That's just what they think they want because what they, they think, or whatever. yeah. Cause they think like, Oh, I get an agent. And then all of a sudden, like everyone's going to know my music and everyone's going to know my name. And like, I'll be playing lightning in a bottle and like, you know, doing all this cool stuff. And, um, yeah, I would say that focusing on your craft is better. That's kind of what I always tell people who ask me this question too. I'm like, just write music and just get better and better at it. And eventually like, um, if you just keep doing that through doing it enough, you'll stumble across your own sort of sound and style 
just inevitably based on you know your subconscious influences throughout your life and whatnot um and then if you're just pulling that off like amazingly well uh you know people will find it it's not like people are going to ignore really sick shit like for a good example in the like last few years was alan moore you know like he's clearly just a dude who's like sat at home like perfecting his craft to the point of being just like one of the like elite like epically good producers you know like john hopkins yeah level style production and i mean he didn't really do a whole lot of marketing like when he put his last two albums out he sort of just posted them on Bandcamp, put them up on like some distributor and like all of a sudden everyone knows who he is and like everyone thinks it's really sick i mean he's not really doing shows because i just don't think that's his thing but if he wanted to he could easily get an asian in america and start doing them or um you know another example is like bill Ayn. You know, Bill Ayn is yeah. not someone who's, you know, massively like promoted his stuff ever, but he's just one of those people who sits at home and just like has perfected his craft and everyone knows him because he's just so, so good at it. It's like people just slowly started finding out about it and because it was so good, they started like, I think there's some like pride in like showing somebody else an an artist that's like new and really sick you know like oh yeah if you hang around your friends and you're like oh but you have you heard this like new thing it's oh, yeah. fucking good and you want to be that kind of artist right that people are excited to show their other friends that they found first that's like some new crazy shit um and i mean yeah the only way you can be that artist is to be really good yeah and i uh yeah i used to have a lot of pride in that i've fallen off the map a little bit of being really up on new music and I, I need to make a point to do better at that. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. I think like, you know, like why isn't like, if you were in my opinion, anything involving music as a career is cool. You know, like if you were making beats and hanging out on illegal immigrants and like participating in the forum and like, you know, sharing your stuff and listening to others, but also like funding your life by being a music teacher, like you've made it in the music industry. As far as I'm concerned, like these days, it's like, who cares, man, because you're not like selling out an arena. You're like teaching kids how to make music, but like participating in the new discussion of new music. Like, that's great. That's all you need. Like I do live sound and I, I tour with, um, beats antique and I, uh, you know, work theaters and do sound. And like, I don't care about being a hotshot agent anymore. You know, like it doesn't matter. Well, this actually might be like a good uh, part of the podcast to like segue into philosophy. Cause like you did a philosophy degree right before you became an agent. Sure. Um, yep. And I want to talk a little bit about like why <laughs> you did a philosophy degree and then we're like, I'm going to become an agent, but then also, um, I think what's like more uh, like what, what would segue better here is to talk about um, like just what constitutes a good life, right? Because uh, I think really the, the bigger question is not like how do I play out a sold out arena? People just want to do that because they think that will constitute a better life for them, right? And that they'll be happier and that they'll have more money and that people will think they're cooler and they'll overall just feel great. Um, so I guess like that's really the goal is just to to do to f really to figure out what it is that you like in life and then try to make your life consist of that most of the time during your days because your days make up your life yeah um it's an interesting question i mean 
what makes a good life, you know? And I guess an interesting sort of like, is it subjective or is it objective? You know, like what makes a good life? You know what I mean? Yeah. Is it um, if everybody else around you thinks like, oh, that person did a bunch of good shit. They like donated to charities. They helped the elderly. They like did all this like nice stuff. They had a great life, but you were like miserable through the whole process. Um, right. But you just yeah. felt like very driven or something to like help everyone versus if you were like, you know, say incredibly selfish and like didn't feel driven to help anyone, felt really awesome about yourself and like just hoarded money or something. Like yeah. What is technically the better life there? The person who subjectively felt that it was really good or the person who sub, uh, objectively did good things. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's hard. So I don't think we'll be able to answer that. I mean, you know, the only thing I can say from my experience is that I went big in one way. And I, I remember specifically thinking to myself when I went to New York, like, okay, um, you know, cause I came from a degree in philosophy, like you said, in, um, in, uh, sorry, my automatic lights just shut down there for a sec, <laughs> um, in Montana to going to a big agency in New York city. I remember specifically thinking like, all right, I'm going to be selfish for a little while in my life and earn a lot of money and, you know, grind, grind out this New York city sort of, you know, corporate job. And this way, if I'm selfish for like a couple of years and make a bunch of money, maybe then I can sort of move on and do something good. Like maybe and, then I will. <laughs> and uh, it like occurred to me, like, you know, a year in or something. And, you know, I transitioned to another agency, Surefire Agency, and we worked together there as well. And things improved but still found like complete emptiness. And, and, um, you know, for me, it was just like, for me, it was the activities I was missing. Like I wasn't playing guitar. I wasn't, um, snowboarding and skateboarding, which like are huge for me, obviously, you know, I wasn't getting outside. I wasn't like getting exercise. Like I, you know, on the other side of it, like I was doing too many drugs and drinking a lot and partying a lot, you know, like, and I, I don't know. I think health is a big part of it. You know, what makes a good life, um, and what constitute health, I think is much broader than a lot of people give it credit for. Like, you know, I think snowboarding and playing guitar are incredibly important for me in my, in my mental health, you know, um, so I think you have to find your own things and in like when you're asking a question like, Hey, Bill, how do I get signed to an agency? Like, I think you need to reevaluate that question. Yeah. To some degree. I also think to some degree, like you have to go down these paths a little bit to figure True. out like more about yourself. Like for instance, a huge turning point for me in the show thing was when I played Red Rocks for the first time opening for Dead Mouse. Um, like I'd always had this idea that like once I played like these giant shows where people definitely knew my music, I'd just be like, oh yeah, that's sick. Like I made it and I feel like, you know, I always felt like it was this end point where I was like, that's yeah. where, like, this is where I will feel like I have made it. And this is where I'll feel like, uh, my musical career has been fulfilled and, and that like all my hard work has paid off. And then I like played the show. And then after it, I was like, I feel exactly the same. And like, I, I like ruminated on that for like weeks. I was like, man, what the fuck? But then I was like, I, I started to look at it more as like a, um, 
like I'm glad that I got to have that experience because there's not a lot of people who will get to stand on the stage at Red Rocks and play a show. Like that's yeah. very few people will get to do that. And I've been able to do it now twice, which is awesome. Um, <clears throat> but it's like such a like cool thing to be able to have done just to be able to have like figured out that it's not what I need to be happy. And also like touring to the degree that I have as well. It's like, if I'd never done that, I still probably would be in the position of thinking that like, that's a thing that I feel very driven to do. And I think will make me feel very fulfilled and happy. Right. But because I've like done it and all, um, and I know that it sort of doesn't lead towards that. That's again, like it's sort of a really um, privileged position to be in because a lot of people won't get to have that experience who want to have that experience to be able to prove themselves wrong. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I think the milestones are important. Um, you know, for example, like, yeah, it was cool that I worked at AM only and like got the job offer in general and like worked on some giant tours and contracts. Like that was cool a cool part of my life. I'm glad it happened in my twenties. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that that way of thinking, like once, like I realized after a while, like those, those milestones of like, okay, so what would happen at am only like, let's say I grinded out for 10 years, you know, and got great reviews and became an awesome agent, maybe even had people working under me. Like there's no end, you know? So I think, you know, like getting signed to an agent, you, you, that will just, there'll be stuff after that, you know? So once you realize that, like, for example, like I said, with the, the things I do to keep myself healthy, like snowboarding, like there's no like, okay, I'm going to go hella skiing in Alaska. And then once I do that, now I've reached my pinnacle. Like, no, like I can do other stuff after that. You know, it's a great milestone, but you know, I think people searching for this like end to finally be happy and nothing else will happen. Like it, it, those aren't real, you know? Yeah. It's the same with touring, right? It's like, there's, there's these points, um, or there has been these points in my career where I'm like doing just grinding really hard, right? Like flights every day, sleeping in, you know, on couches and in hotels and on friends, you know, floors and shit like that. Um, and, you know, there's this thing in my head that's like, oh, I just have to grind like this a little longer and then, you know, touring, right. uh, touring will be sick after that. And then it's like, no, man, it's not going to get this. It's only going to get harder. Like the, the that's the fucking crazy thing about music. It's like the better you get at it, the less music you make. Yeah. So like assuming that you go the route that most musicians do, which is live shows, it's like the, the secret level that you unlocked is being hung over in an airport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, true, man. And like, yeah, it's, it's brutal for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, touring is important, but I think one thing that happened with touring in this pandemic might be a good reset, to be honest, is it got a little watered down to be honest, you know, and like, um, people were just doing it to do it. And agents were just sending it like, every act needed to be touring all the time. If they weren't making money, why aren't they making money? Like blah, blah, blah. And, um, I would like to see the creativity come back in it. You know, I think you and I, at least we tried for the margin, you know, financial margins we were working with to be pretty creative, at least with our show for the style of music anyway. Um, but yeah, I would like to see the creativity come back a little bit. Um, 
you know, like we said before, everyone's just doing it to do it kind of. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it is kind of just an economy though, right? Cause yeah, it's just like however many tickets you can sell is how much money you get paid. And then like everyone on your team gets a cut of that amount of money and whatnot. So, I mean, whenever there's um, like carrots, you know, as a reward, people are going to do the thing to get the carrots. That's like, right. How it's always going to work in every industry. I think, you know, we're seeing that at the moment with you know, the stock market with the game. Yeah. yeah. Shit's crazy. Do you own stonks? <laughs> no, I, uh, I do have a Robin hood account from like years ago. Um, and haven't really done anything with it. I'm an acorns account too. Still haven't done anything with either of them. Um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about investing lately. Um, Same. It seems like it's kind of the the only real way to play the money game long term, actually like get a nest egg going or whatever. But this also might be another one of those things that's like, uh, oh, like, once I invest a little bit, yeah. then I'll be good. Yeah, then <laughs> I'll like, be all set. Well, yeah, then I'll feel like, you know, all secure and shit because I will like know that this investment is there and whatnot. But, you know, then I do that and I'm like, oh, fuck, I still feel insecure. What the fuck? <laughs> you know what will happen? And, and I, don't, I don't know for sure, but this is what I predict will happen is you'll do that, like you said, and we'll be like, oh, yeah, this is great. I have my nest egg. But then you'll watch the market go up and down. You'll be like, oh, fuck, my nest egg. <laughs> yeah, I saw a post on um, the Bitcoin Reddit where someone was like, um, even if I like win money or lose money, I'm like unhappy either way, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but, like if I win money, then I'm like both unhappy that I essentially like, uh, you know, cause the whole Bitcoin thing and people hate that I say this, it's just like a whole greater full, like it's the greatest Ponzi scheme of all time. In my opinion, I am very interested in cryptocurrency. Here's the thing in my mind, it's no different than the dollar right now because the dollar is like no longer backed by gold, right? It's a legal it's, standard. It's way different than the, the dollar because the dollar I mean, is it's, inflated. Like you can, you, you can just keep like creating it and that's what like keeps the, the value of it the same year after year basically. Right. And the interest rates are decided by a centralized bank. Mm -hmm. um, the interest rates on loans? Uh, no, on the do on the dollar, on like how much how much a government buys a dollar for, you know? Right. And um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know enough about cryptocurrency. Like I never got involved, and I haven't really done my homework. Um, I'm interested in it for sure because, like, let's be honest. Like, something's got to replace our our sort of market dinosaur eventually. I, I agree with that for sure. Um, I think the way that I look at crypto right now, um, and when I say crypto, I essentially just mean Bitcoin. Right. Um, is that it's kind of like people are not really buying it because they think it's this like decentralized currency that's going to like change the world, right? People, that's 99% of people are buying it so they can sell it for more than they bought. Right. Of course. Greedy right. fucks. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> like, what does that mean? That means if they bought it for $10,000 and then they sold it for $20,000, that they just made a bunch of money from other people, basically. Like that money didn't come from anywhere. Um, like it didn't come from nowhere. It came from other people who lost $10,000. Right. So I guess this person was saying like they're unhappy either way because they realized that 
even if they win money, that they're just like winning it from other people who are losing it. Plus, it's like this constant stress of looking at the market every day. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, to be honest, I hate money, but here we are. Um, yeah, I also think it's funny that like everyone who's into Bitcoin talks about like literally all they talk about is how much its value is in US dollars, which is right. like, that's the biggest red flag. It's like if you're even comparing it to the US dollar, then that just tells you the US dollar is more important and worth more. Well, let's uh, well let's break this down in like true Socratic form and get totally ripped apart by your viewers who probably know more about cryptocurrency than you and I do. But um, like, all right, let's start with like people are like, oh my god, it's going to be so great because it's a decentralized um, currency, like you said. Like, I don't understand most of that statement. <laughs> like, why is it decentralized? And um, why is that great? So the reason it's great is because um, currently right now, every time you make a transaction, like let's say you send $10 to me over like Venmo or something, right? With with Bitcoin or with the dollar? With just dollars through dollars. Venmo. Like, yeah, like right. you send me money as you would send me money like normally. Uh, well, it has to go through a bank and we have to trust that the bank on your end and my end is keeping an accurate uh, ledger, you know? So right, yeah. We have to trust that um, if you have $100 in your account and I have 90 in my account, that they've then accounted correctly and put 90 in your account and 100 in my account, you know? Yeah. Um, and because we have this like weird intermediary thing and it's like all centralized in this one spot, the bank, um, that's kind of a problem just because we have to put so much trust in that system to work. Right, Whereas yeah, yeah. Bitcoin, it's like everyone, kind of, it's like peer-to-peer -peer sharing with like torrents or whatever. Um, everyone has access to the ledger, it's public. It's all on what's called the blockchain. Um, and that's why people think it's a lot safer or at least like um, you don't have to like rely on this intermediary thing in the middle. Like it's just everyone has access to it. Uh, and then I guess the transactions have like a bit more security in terms of, I'm not exactly sure how the security works, but the the problem is that like, it's actually probably less secure because it's not FDIC insured like a bank. Right. Yeah. And yeah. So what happens if it crashes? Everyone just loses money. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, mostly the people who lose money are the people who bought it at 40 grand, you know? Right. <laughs> people who bought it way back in the day just lose whatever they invested. Um, I, I like the way Warren Buffett puts it. He says, um, if everyone in the world started with one cent and you flipped a coin every day and whoever picks the coin that had the right side on it, let's say heads or tails, all the one cents from the people who picked the wrong side, their one cents go to the people who picked the right side of the coin. Um, and then you just keep doing this every day. And what will happen is the exact same thing that's happened in our society, which is like a few people will just end up with all the money. Yeah. Yeah, man. That, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, that's why I'm not really on board with it. I don't understand enough about it and I don't know. I don't trust it. I don't trust I don't trust money in general. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I, so here's the thing is it's not that I don't trust Bitcoin it's that I don't trust people. I think people are just right. That's, greedy yeah. and like no form of money system ever will ever fix people's greed. And I think that's kind of just like why I don't really see this Bitcoin. Like I, I understand how to some degree how the technology works. And I think it's like it's impressive, right? Like it's it's a cool idea. It's like very clever. Um, and it but will, it's still just more of the same. I feel like it's the same in the sense that, yeah, people are just treating it as stocks. You know? Right. Um, and I think like if you're going to invest in stocks, then again, you should probably listen to fucking Warren Buffett, right? And he's not saying invest in Bitcoin. He's saying invest in the S&P 500 because that's like the most reliable way to make your, make your money. Right. But that also makes him rich. Yeah, that is true. And I mean, that's probably why Bitcoiners are also like, you should invest in Bitcoin, right? Because it's like the yeah. <laughs> Warren Buffett being like, invest in the things I'm invested in because that'll yeah. increase my the price of my investment and then uh, I will cash in and be more Warren Buffetty. Than yeah. <laughs> How was it doing a philosophy degree, by the way? Um, I mean, I loved it. Uh, and it was, um, it was interesting because I also took entertainment management classes and that was in the business school and you know and then i was also in the liberal arts school taking philosophy and uh which was funny just because business school teachers and students were always like oh wow yeah he takes philosophy <laughs> and like i could have been failing philosophy for all they knew like you know but they just thought the class even work though. Like it's, you just sit around and sort of talk about questions basically. No, it's much more rigorous than that. Thankfully, <laughs> like that's sort of the idea, you know, like that people think about it like, Oh yeah, you can just talk about how you feel about something, but it's very analytic and like strict. And like, you know, when you take like, let's say an Aristotle class, I mean, you read all of Aristotle and you have to like take his, arguments out of his reading in an analytic form and you know meaning like premise premise conclusion type you know and like you know and find the arguments and then write a paper let's say on like why he was wrong which is very hard and um You're like prove aristotle wrong you're like easy <laughs> yeah right and like um you know classes I really liked were, but there, you know, there are more, I would say poetic philosophers like Thoreau and stuff, which he's more about like the prose and like sort of the, the poetry. Like I would, I mean, he does have definitely like arguments, um, you know, like specifically there's, uh, I think there's an argument against like taxation he had one time that was really famous and then um but then he writes walden which is just him living in the woods for two years um you know so it's harder to extract like analytic philosophy from him but then you have things like metaphysics which are strictly analytic and those deal with like problems of our reality um like free will free will and causation and stuff like that yeah um, what did you, uh, where do you stand on free will? Free will? Um, that's a good question. I would say, um, you know, I do believe that, first of all, I, I believe that there is a God, but I do not believe in any religion. You know, I don't think, you know, whenever you're like, oh, yeah, I believe in God, people are like, oh, wow, you're like, 
Christianity? And it's like, no, no, like it doesn't have to be that way. Um, I said wrong word to use for it then. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I subscribe to, I think, uh, Spinozan sort of idea of God, which is like that it's nature. Like you could call it nature, right. And nature is unfolding in a certain way. Um, because like God, it is all knowing and all benevolent. Um, and so even though, you know, we have, you know, people who get bone cancer and stuff and evil things that happen in our world, um, which I think this is, this is a, a problem with it for sure. The evils of the world, like how could God let that happen? I guess some kind, you know, things that explain it are like, well, we're so minute compared to the universe that, you know, those problems aren't on scale. But, um, I would say that, uh, I subscribe to that because I think that's a level of determinism I'm comfortable with, you know, like, I don't believe we have total free will. I think if like the universe unfolded billions of years before us, and now we're here and we're born, there's probably a lot out of our control, but I don't think it has to be either or like, I don't think it's black and white, you know, like we have free will or everything's determined. Um, and I think there's this funny fear in humans when they hear determinism and stuff that like, Oh, well, if everything's determined, then I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. And like, everything will just happen. And, uh, I don't think that's necessarily how free will works either. Cause then it's like, well, you just decided, you know, like, yeah, that might've been part of the plan, but that's now your decision. So I think our decision is like part of the determinism, you know? Right. Yeah. So like, for instance, um, like you just scratch your nose, right? Yeah. I think if, um, if you're, if we could rewind the universe back a few moments to right. where just before I you scratch your nose, I think I would always scratch my nose. Right. Cause like, uh, yeah. if you could have been in the exact same state again with your brain like just prepared to fire all of those synapses exactly as they just did yeah like which of by the way like all of those synapses that were about to fire like so much subconscious shit out of your control as to like why that that's happening right like this so much shit that's just on autopilot deep down that you have zero control over within your yeah. own body um but yeah i guess like the idea of free will is that if we could re rewind back to that point where your brain was in the exact state in the universe, everything was in the exact state it was just before you did that, that you could have chosen to do otherwise. I think that we, I think I would have done the same thing. And I think, um, you know, there's a, an important, uh, distinction in like new modern philosophy, which I actually really like, which is that, um, uh, uh so there's a philosopher, George Lakoff, and there's one other Mark Johnson, that write this book about the embodied mind theory, um, which is very interesting because um, most of Western philosophy is rooted in this mind mind body dilemma, which is that um, there's a distinction between mind things and physical things, meaning like if you raise your hand, there's two separate things going on. There's like a thought that exists in like an abstract way of raising my hand and there's the physical mechanisms. Um, but like you said, 
um, in how in the embodied mind theory works is that everything is physical, like the synopsis fire in a certain way, you know, ideas are actually physical electrical elements that happen in the brain. Right. And that, that confuses us on that. Right. That yeah. I feel like there's something other than physical because I right. mean, like you raising your hand and like feeling like I just chose to do that feels a certain way. Right. And it's like, uh, you know, it's just so hard for us to, to do that and feel like it's completely involuntary. Right. Yeah. Like if yeah, you have and- muscle spasm or something like something that you're not in control of and you're like, fuck, like my muscle just like spasmed or something. And you see that that also feels a, a different way. Right. It feels right. like I'm watching something happen that I'm not in control of. But it's really like it's all that you're not in control. You're not in control of any of it. But it's just like um, some some weird shit going on with consciousness that makes us feel like uh, that we are in control of all the things that we're doing. Yeah. And and like um, so they would also say that like 99 percent of what we do, our actions and our thoughts and everything are unconscious, not even like subconscious, like most of everything that's done is like. (laughs) already already determined um and all all uh abstract sort of philosophies and thoughts are actually metaphors for like physical things that are represented like cause and stuff like that you know like and um i think that's interesting because i don't know i like even though i've subscribed to this i don't get i i don't know i don't get like depressed about free will no, because I mean, there's no reason to it's like the right. way it is it's still going to feel like you have free will that's the the entire reason we think we have it in the first place is just because we feel like we do like that's the best argument for it yeah is that and i feel like i do <laughs> and i think yeah right and i feel like i do and that's all that matters really in our life like whatever on the universal scale like we don't fucking matter so who cares and like in that sense like I don't know why everyone then chooses like depression and I don't care. I'm not going to do anything with that. Like, okay. Or you could do like an awesome job and work really hard and like do everything you love. And like, but it still won't matter. Either way you would have um, reacted to finding out this information is still like predetermined, right? It's like, just again it's like your synapses just get set up in such a way by hearing that information based on a bunch of subconscious shit and external influences that you didn't have any control over to fire it such a way that make you either say like yes this is great i'm going to do the best job i possibly can or no this sucks i'm going to be depressed about it right right sure sure but um you know that's why i think there is i do think there is a problem with free will and i actually wrote a my senior thesis on something I call the aesthetic, uh, problem or what did I, I called it something else too, like the subjective objective anomaly or something where like, um, you know, basically we are like just a, a figure of sense organs, right? We have eyes, we have ears, we have all, everything that makes senses, um, you know, the five <laughs> senses or whatever. And all of that, is basically like we're in this like pool of electromagnetic energy just like swarming around us and we um we take input data 
which is like light refracting on our, on the cones of our eyes and like sound, um, going into our eardrums and stuff like that. And, and that input data gets registered into our computer. And then, and then what happens actually afterwards is we have output data, which is us reacting to the world from whatever input data we have. Like, you know, you would be walking down the street and you would stop at a crosswalk because you see that and the, you know, all the sensors of you're at a street corner would fire and you would stop and then you would react with the world. And, and I, I think that's how art is made too. I think like, that's why art is made. Oh, dude, is, yeah, a total input output system. So right. there's something I've been like espousing for a while, which is that I don't think creativity exists either or at least I don't think it exists in a vacuum, right? Like I don't think it exists right. in the way that a lot of people think it does where they're like, I bam, I just had an idea. That's like creativity just coming from the my insides. Like, you know, now I'm inspired. It's, I don't think it works that way. I think it's like all input output. It's, you know, yep. you take some sort of stimulus in and then that like triggers some shit in your brain to be like, oh fuck, that gives me an idea, you know? And that's especially why I think you're more creative when you're being creative with other people because there's just more stimulation. Like there's more yeah. senses coming in, which which triggers your brain more and go, you know, I think everyone who's played music or written music with another person has had that experience where they do something and you're like, oh, that gives me an idea. And then you do something and that gives them an idea. And it like you bounce back and forth off each other and stuff. I think, um, and one thing I've been teaching people a lot lately because pe a lot of people also hit me up with the question of like, how do you never get stuck with music and like why... How do I stay inspired and all this kind of stuff? And for a long time, I couldn't answer the question until I kind of like thought about this for a while and <clears throat> figured that the only thing you need to do is to be able to reliably create outside stimulus coming in via like randomization inside your DAW and stuff like that. And if you can reliably do that, then you can reliably trigger your brain to have ideas. Yeah. And um, so, and, and, you know, I think like, you know, I was saying that these, these philosophers who write the embodied mind theory are claiming, you know, obviously not an exact science number, but like that 99.98% of our activities sub or unconscious. Right. So I think this output data though, of creativity is actually what makes us human. And I think that there is a level of sort of like change that we put into this, this like energy that's out there is like this creativity output. And that's the only minute, like this 0.02% of free will that we have is just like, you know, when you see a fork out of place at a dining room set and you like fix it or something. I don't know exactly the mechanics, obviously, like this would have to be developed, but, um, I think there is a level of like, of something that we are changing or, um, like or doing or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, but to your, to your point, actually, I just like to add that, um, there's actually this really cool book, uh, called how music works by, uh, David Byrne, uh, who is one of the, one of the guys from the, or the main, main guy, I guess you could say from the talking heads. And, uh, he, he, he writes, uh, a lot of it is about how they recorded music and talking heads, which is also very interesting. Um, but the first chapter is actually very cool. And he writes about how, like, um, 
no one writes music because they're internally like inspired. Like you said, you know, like we really write music and music develop because, you know, first we wanted to write it for the churches and we had these huge pipe organs and like, that's the music they wrote. Um, it wasn't because they were inspired to write hymns or, um, pipe organ music. It's because that's the venues. And then it turned into orchestras and then, and then eventually orchestras could even have quiet parts because they had like amphitheaters that would actually like, you know, so it wasn't bombastic all the time. And then he's kind of saying, we're just like products of our environment. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, those things don't have to be depressing. Like, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's a level or like some people look at that kind of stuff and are like, ah, oh, like that sucks. And it's like, I don't know, in a way it's kind of awesome for some reason to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're on some, you're on like the most fun, crazy ride you could ever possibly be on, like where within that ride, you can like make your own games up and like have people play these games with you and all sorts of shit. It's like this. Yeah pretty impressive do you think um through free will not existing that to some degree it buys you or gains you empathy of others like for instance and this is like a really hard pill to swallow slash uh maybe going off the deep end a little bit but like you know some person like murders another person do we uh, to some degree go like oh they didn't have free will you know maybe they had a tumor pushing on their frontal lobe or well i think those are two different things right if they had a tumor pushing on their frontal lobe and they were actually just uh going crazy on their last leg of life that's different than us just being like oh well yeah i mean he murdered someone but you know the universe was always going to have a murder that person right so i don't i the tumor thing is like so obvious maybe like that that was the issue right but like let's say there was a uh uh issue that was underlying and would have always happened and the synapses in their brain would have always fired in such a way that that would have made them want to kill somebody else but it's not so obvious where that's coming from because they don't have a tumor or something right um if you still subscribe to uh determinism does that buy you empathy of that person of the murderer and it has to right i mean yeah that's a hard question philosophically well, the, the thing is, is that it's an easy answer the answer is like right. it, no it has to but it's a hard yeah. answer to accept yeah. yeah um well i don't know that's a good question um because we want to say no well i mean where does this empathy come from then like because i you want to say no right you want to be like um yeah people you want to say no you want to say we we should you know uh despise this person and lock them up and you know keep keep society safe from them and whatnot which is legit i think we should do that of course but um there's also like this other part that if you say free will doesn't exist that then then you, yeah. you must say that this person is actually just unlucky to have been a murderer right you know, I think it's also like, uh, we're sort of, you know, the way legality and morality works it, right. is like, um, you know, you're born into a society with laws already written. Right. Um, and then you just kind of have to like <clears throat> go with the laws that are there and, um, you know, legality doesn't necessarily mean morality. And when, uh, like there's liberties and securities, 
So you give away a liberty of like being able to murder someone with the security of like society saying, um, you will also not get murdered. Probably you will hopefully not get murdered. Um, and we'll jail the, and we'll, you know, so I don't know, those things were decided by an entire society. So like, it's, it's hard because like, I don't think the universe speaks to us that directly either. Like I said, you do, I do still believe in a level of free will. I don't think it's black and white, you know, like I don't think it necessarily has to be like the universe determined every minute detail. Um, you know, things are chaotic in physics and metaphysics in the universe. So you like know, might, to some degree, do you think um, what you're talking about is like randomness? Right. Yeah. Um, but, but randomness also does not get you free will. That gets you randomness. Right. Yes. Well, randomness and chaos are two different things too. Right. And, um, you know, it, it might just be that we lack understanding, but in physics and metaphysics, mm -hmm. right, there's a lot of chaos still. Um, How is chaos different from random? Because random uh, can still be calculated in a certain way. Right, no, chaos means random. I mean, no, but so this is the um, so I, I date a cryptographer or I date a hacker basically, and one of the huge things in infosec, like internet security, is RNG, random number generation. Right, actually, the entire game of cryptography, like how to make the most secure passwords, is how to create the most uncalculatable random thing. And if you can do that, that's kind of you've like won the game basically. Right. So no, by definition, random does mean like completely uncomfortable. So yeah, so so yeah, I guess that's you know what we can prescribe to it. But yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to have empathy for him. No, <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't, no, nobody does. <laughs> but yeah, I guess like my my question or my my thought there is that like because this is another thing I've thought about because I I definitely think there's no such thing i think everything is like I'm, I'm pretty much a hard determinist at this point i would say yeah um, but i've thought like in being a hard determinist like i also have to like be empathetic of people that are just unlucky who who are murderers right but it's like such a hard thing for me to reconcile with this thought because i want to be a hard determinist but i also don't want to have empathy for a murderer right so, yeah I, I get stuck there a little bit yeah that one is that one is tough because I would say at this point, I would also say I'm mostly a determinist. Yeah, um, Sam Harris has a really good book about it. Um, it's called Free Will. Who does? Sam Harris. Oh, yeah, Free Will. Yeah, have you read it or listened? No, I haven't, but I, I know of it. I, would, I should read it. It's really good. Yeah, it's, it's also pretty short as well. Like the audiobook version is two and a half hours or something. Nice. And he's got another another book that's really cool called Lying, which is all about lying. And he's like, you know, he, he basically makes an argument that there's no reason that lying is ever better than telling the truth. So um, what uh, do you think that everything has been determined already or that it gets determined at time at the time of creation? Um, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I think that's like impossible to say, but I also think that as far as we can like see back, um, like if you pay attention to like where a thought comes from, right? Like if you've ever meditated or whatever, 
you kind of notice pretty obviously that thoughts just kind of like appear like they don't yeah. you know, create them they don't like come from a certain place they just like appear and then disappear so i mean for all we know yeah shit is just getting created and uncreated in the same way as thoughts because i mean essentially as far as anything is concerned in our existence or our observation of it it's just a series of thoughts really yeah yeah and i think like universally too the thing that we talk about as the beginning of time is like the big bang or whatever you know physically um but i mean even on a cosmic sense like do things you know was that always going to happen then or what what does that even mean for something that's more of a concept you know before before time like everything being condensed into an idea more than like a geometric point you know or shape or like container or whatever mm. it's hard to say when like consciousness came into effect because consciousness is really like where the crux of all of this shit comes from right it's right. like us having this experience that feels like there is some state of being there like there is a, a state of what it is like to be us um, and if like we can imagine that if we were like a cat or a dog, there would be a state of what it, what, what it is like to be a cat or a dog. But, you know, we can also say like if we were a rock or a brick, there's probably no state at which it is like to be a rock or a brick. Right. <clears throat> so it's like really all of uh, the questions, I think, emanate from this state of being um, <clears throat> alive. Yeah, I, I actually, I have a, I thought of something pretty interesting the other day, or not thought, I like found out, and this is like kind of unrelated, but it just, uh, you going back to like the Big Bang and evolution, like just reminded me of evolution and stuff. And um, I learned that uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, um, like the distance of time between us and the Tyrannosaurus Rex is the same distance of time between the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Stegosaurus. Wow. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's That's like, amazing. Yeah, like when we think of dinosaurs, we think, oh, they're like, you know, dinosaurs. They're all around at the same time, and then they all died at the same time. Yeah. Humans came along. But no, it's like the, the dinosaurs were around for that long that the Stegosaurus was the amount of time we are from the Tyrannosaurus Rex back. And... um this all i that's funny that you said that so also isn't this true that um the amount of time since they've been extinct um is like way longer than we've existed than humans have existed wait what wasn't it like because humans have been around for what like i don't know how long have how long has human civilization been around i don't know i'll google it that's good that's a good question for siri how long have humans been around <clears throat> about two hundred thousand years okay oh, well our ancestors have been around for about six million years the modern form of humans only evolved about two hundred thousand years ago civilization as we know it is only about six thousand years old and industrialization started only in the 1800s and then so okay so like six million years old and then how long ago did dinosaurs go extinct um 
How long ago did dinosaurs become? I like that. This is the only questions we've Googled so far. <laughs> uh, so they, they became extinct about 65 million years ago. So about 60 million years between dinosaurs and humans. Yeah. And about 60 million years between the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Stegosaurus. And, and that's like a big gap of like time we don't talk about. You know, we're really only interested in the dinosaurs and then like, 60 million years go by and then we're like okay so humans let's talk <laughs> like you know like let's i'm talk, sure other things happen engine <laughs> yeah how much time yeah. between stegosaurus and t-rex let's see uh yeah so um the stegosaurus roamed the earth during the late jurassic period which was about 156 to 144 million years ago. And the Tyrannosaurus Rex lived during the late Cretaceous period, which is about 67 to 65 million years ago. Damn. So yeah, Stegosaurus and T-Rex, 60 million years apart. Us and the T-Rex, 60 million years apart. Wow, crazy, man. Like that's crazy for real. Yeah, like thinking about relative time scale. That's Yeah. <clears throat> it's crazy to think that... um. 60 more million years from now there might be like another species on this planet that's just like oh yeah dinosaurs and humans like same shit like there <laughs> yeah well you know the other thing that's interesting about like about this with evolution is that like species don't exist in nature as species like we create what a species is you know like evolution is most likely more fluid than we give it credit for you know what i mean like like we're like oh this bug has three abdomens and this many legs so like it's this bug and like um i don't know that evolution is thinking about it that way you know what i mean like evolution things about things are just evolving and like going and like adapting and like i think humans and machines are going to basically like come together in a very non -op like apocalyptic way um Oh, like the singularity or whatever? Yeah, but I don't, yeah. I mean, evolution purely just thinks about shit from a survival standpoint, right? It's like, right. You need, but also a random, but also random, like things will, like, it isn't always that the strongest survive or, or adapt to their environment. Something, sometimes, like, something, some random thing happens and it ends up being beneficial and um, moving on into future generations. Right, but I mean, that's still the strongest surviving. Right, yeah, yeah. They didn't. And how do we know, though? You know, like maybe that random thing isn't so random. Maybe evolution is like, oh, you need a third abdomen, otherwise you will never survive. <laughs> right, I guess I guess you're right. Like maybe it is in concrete, but I doubt it. <laughs> um, yeah, and the other, you know, like it's interesting because like Darwin gets very uh, misread um mainly because uh he gets adopted by like these german philosophers like kafka and stuff that are like way more sort of nazi driven uh later later in years and you know they have this like um you have this idea that darwin was like oh competitiveness is like the strong only the strong survive and and stuff like that but darwin actually uh um I actually read on the theory of evolution like three or three or so years ago. Um, and it's very dry, but it was pretty interesting when you get to like his thoughts on it. 
And, um, and he was like, no, like you need to be collaborative and like, like allow things to survive and thrive. And like, that's when the best is going to come out of it. Um, right. Like this is, um, isn't there some such a thing as like um genetic sterilization or something or I don't, there's something that happens right when like you keep breeding things that are too similar together they start to become really weak in certain ways yeah like there's um like uh, uh, it happens in dogs a lot uh, like golden retrievers and stuff because people are just breeding them and they're like sort of breeding the same bloodline Right, so um, it's one weakness, like the strength and the good things about them get multiplied throughout the uh, breeds, but also the weaknesses get like. Yep. Yeah, and then yeah, and then you get some like really messed up dogs. Right, that can like barely breathe and shit. Yep. Fucking pugs and whatnot. Yeah, which I think like um, genetic diversity is definitely a very healthy thing. Yeah. You get like a bit of strength from all the the whole gene pool and create a very healthy dog. Yep. <laughs> Speaking of which, how's Mora? Do you still have Mora? Oh yeah, man. Mora is the best. Mora is the, the light of my life. Um, she's uh yeah, she's great. She, oh dude, she's thriving up in Vermont. You know, I mean, you know, we play, we go out on our porch and play stick. We don't need to go to the park anymore. <laughs> yeah. She probably hated New York. Hey? Yeah. I don't think she knew that she hated it then because you know, she lived in Minneapolis and then New York city. So um, it's all she knew, but then you know, we would, cause as you knew, um, or know that my parents had uh, a house in this area as well. Um, and so we would go up there every now and then to visit. And I think it started to blow her mind a little bit. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, when we moved now, she's like so content and like, so happy. Um, I'm married as well. I, did Wait, I talk what? to you? Did I, I talk to you? No, <laughs> yeah, I had yeah. no idea about this. Yeah, yeah. So I did get married. Don't worry. Like you're totally invited to the wedding when it when it happens. Um, Wait, we got le get married. We got legally married last December um, because she is from Brazil. Okay. And so we kind of, you know, we went through the the paperwork. Um, but she was working up here at the ski resort, uh, and we met there. And um, yeah, she's amazing. And also part of why Mora is so happy is she has a full-time mom now who loves her. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were going to have like an, a wedding ceremony this summer, but you know, weddings aren't doing so hot these days. <laughs> yeah. It seems like most gatherings are not speaking of which I, um, spent all morning on Twitter reading a bunch of threads because uh, Squanto played a pretty packed show in Southern Carolina. I this saw time. that, yeah. Yeah, and I, oh man, what, how do you feel about I mean, obviously, there's only really like one logical way to feel about this. but So, I mean, like, yeah, I think we're both subscribed to the fact that we should listen to doctors and scientists and health officials, right? Of course. Um, but I, Yeah, we should. But uh, the other thing is like, because the cdc fucked up so many times like for instance they were like wearing masks is whatever you don't have to do it and then they're like holy shit fucking wear masks it really helps <laughs> and then they were like oh also um they said something else like there was a few pieces of information they gave out that was just completely wrong 
And now today they put out a post saying wearing two masks is like, Oh, I saw that. I didn't like, read the, the article, but yes, I saw that headline and yeah, I, basically, I, basically like it's way better. You should definitely put on as many masks as you possibly can. Basically. I, I saw that article and I was like, or that headline, I was like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> right. Um, because of this fucking misinformation they put out at the start, it's just given the dumbasses so much ammo. Yeah. So, you know, they're like, you have all these people on Twitter who are like, oh, the CDC said like masks. And they're like, yeah, dude, they said that last March when they barely had any information about anything. Like, yeah. And I mean, here's the problem, man, is like we saw science um, work in real time in a global like way, you know? And the problem with that is you have to do an experiment to even get a hypothesis and that like, you know, like science starts with like wondering something about nature and then doing an experiment, you get a hypothesis, then you do like hundreds of more of exper experiments with controls and variables. And then those are reviewed by peers who do hundreds of experiments with controls and variables. And, and, and then, then like, at that point, you're at like a theory. You know, and like the problem with having this happen in real time and getting released in the news, like, you know, even if the news is like, oh, a new experiment shows this, it's like, yeah, great. Then we can wear another mask. That's, that's fine. But then if they're like later on, oh, turns out through new experimentation that that didn't help. People are like, oh, these fucking assholes don't know anything. And it's like, no, that's, it's just like, this is a hard problem. I wish people, I wish society had more patience, you know? And when I see that like Squanto thing, um, yeah, for me, it's like, I hate this about what we did with the pandemic. And I think it was largely mismanaged, not just by our leader, but by world leaders in general, it seemed like. Um, there was like a lot of data that was squashed because of embarrassment and stuff. And like, that's not how we should work together. And, um, you know, we were on this like fence of like, to me, it's like either we just go for it and get herd immunity and like lots of people die and, or we like do a complete lockdown and like filter this thing out. And we like hit this like fence of that, of like, yeah, kinda, or no, I'm going to do this. And like gotten fights about it. And like, and like some people were doing this and, and like that, that I think was like, the worst possible scenario yeah i would agree i think um it's been handled pretty terribly especially in america i mean australia's fine like right there again like but you guys you guys fucking locked down kind of i mean we also just don't have that many people in australia right. yeah and it's, it's not like america where like you know there's a 49 dollar spirit flight that can just take you <laughs> across the country and yeah in this like cylinder cesspool that flies in the air yeah apparently airplanes aren't actually that bad for getting covid they're not as bad as like um i guess like restaurants or you know yeah airplanes are pretty good because like the recycle uh the the air conditioning right yeah <clears throat> yeah there's a few studies that showed people on airplanes um the only people who got sick if somebody on the plane had covid was like the few rows around them it wasn't yep. the entire plane would get sick or anything. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I don't like that that show happened because, you know, for me, I'm just like, dude, we either, like, do this and get rid of this thing and we all get back to normal or you guys keep doing that and likely continue it. 
which any kind of potential continuation is bad in my eyes. Yeah, and the, the, the annoying thing is the people are like, yeah, well, you know, if you don't like it and you don't want to get sick, just don't come. And like, uh, if you, you know, just wear a mask if you do come and you'll be safe. And it's like, man, it does not work that way. Like, yeah. If, everyone who is in that building now gets COVID. It's not like you're all staying in that building quarantined together for the next three weeks. If you were, that'd be fine, but you're not. You yeah. know, Wanto's getting on a plane and flying back to Utah. Everyone in that building is like dispersing and going back to their families and like going back into society, which is like if a bunch of people got COVID there. So the, the good way to think about this is STDs, right? Um, when you think about uh, like how sexual partners work, you talk about it in the sense of like fluid bonded, right? And it's like, if I have sex with somebody and they have an STD and I then get an STD and then I have sex with another person and give them an STD and they have sex with another person, and give them an STD. Like this is just how shit viruses spread. Um, yeah. And a good term I think to use for COVID is air bonded. So it's like now you've just become essentially fluid bonded or air bonded with like you know a shit ton of people and now you're all gonna go and just like bond with other people and how many people were at that show like 500 oh i mean it's yeah. a lot and yeah that's uh, a lot and if you like look at the picture just the front row and even just many rows back like fucking no one's wearing a mask and everyone's yeah. yelling and screaming which is like the worst thing you can possibly do is like yell and spray aerosols right i know so i know there's a study in germany specifically about concerts with regulations and masks right that proved to be very good Oh, there was actually, yeah. But it was like a giant venue, man. Like it was like, yeah. fuck the size of like First Bank Center in Colorado. And there was like, yeah. I think a thousand people there. So it was like a lot of people That's... spread out, you know, and the place was like well ventilated as fuck. It was like a giant, giant place. That's the problem with like that drive-in <laughs> movie theater model is like they're financially just is not going to work yeah. anywhere. But logistically and and public health wise, it's not that bad. Like being it's not out, that bad. Yeah, yeah being outdoors um, reduces your risk by ten times, and wearing yeah. a mask, like a surgical mask or an N95, just reduces it by like another two to ten times. So, yeah. I mean, you can be outside with another person, and if they're six to ten feet away, and neither of you are really yelling too much, and you're both wearing masks, your risk is pretty low. I went to one, and I worked one. Uh, yeah, I only worked one actual concert this year. Um, yeah, I did um, one or two drive-ins with Ganja White Knight, one in Wisconsin and one in oh, yeah. Los Angeles. Yeah. And I did one outdoor patio show uh, at the Midway in San Fran. And the San Fran one felt definitely the safest, also because the case rates were like the lowest here. Um, uh, the Wisconsin one felt the sketchiest just because I knew the case rates were high there. Yeah. Here. And then the LA one didn't feel too sketchy, um, although I did quarantine for like two weeks when I got home after it just to make sure. Yeah. That's the other thing is like you have to be responsible about it, right? Like if I'm going to go out and do a show like that, I'm going to come home and quarantine and not go out for two weeks just to make sure that I'm not spreading the virus anymore, which is what I did after every show that I played. And then I went like, uh, so I did eight days in a test. So you basically... Um, the ideal time to get tested is between seven and 10 days. That's when the test is most effective. Like if you yeah. come in contact with someone who has COVID and you get tested the next day, it's right. not show up. So um, yeah, eight days in a test is what I've been doing. And Yeah, we've just been like 
really safe um in an annoying amount of you know like i see everyone like oh yeah i went on this road trip and i'm like oh man i've just been like sitting at home like <laughs> trying to wait this thing out you know and even my wife was texting me today like nah dude after the season's over at the mountain like we're going on a trip like everyone is doing it like it doesn't matter and so we've been talking about it and we do have uh we do have flights still to mexico in june so i don't i don't know that might happen yeah i would say if you go anywhere um the best way to do it is to drive yeah that's that's what we want to do in april yeah i would do that i wouldn't fly if you can i mean well who knows you know in april shit might be very different like it's hard because the vaccines are rolling out i know dude how crazy is this we waited like a a year for a vaccine which is like a miracle that we produced in that amount of time yeah and then we're getting bottlenecked at fucking getting it into people's arms and there's like truckloads or you know many vials of the vaccine are just going off because they can't logistically get people into the same place at the same time to yeah i read this uh i read this news article about uh uh like people got stuck in a snowstorm in oregon and uh they were transporting covid vaccine and it was going to expire because of the like extreme refrigeration that's needed um and so they started uh they started injecting like giving it to the people that were stuck in the snowstorm with them oh wow. they're like they're like dude like it's either going to go bad or you guys take have it and so people just started (laughs) yeah i mean i think that's awesome like sure whatever like Hmm. going bad is way worse than like making sure the people on the list go first totally yeah they should 100 percent use it if it's going to go bad anyway um so actually san francisco i found out is uh, quite a good place to be for getting vaccinated because the public health infrastructure here is really good because of aids um so yeah apparently they're gonna be one of the first or not first city but like they're going to be of the top efficient cities to get everyone vaccinated they should be at some point i think giving people half a million shots a day wow that's awesome that's uh that's what happened in africa too is because like they literally just had an ebola um epidemic Mm. so they were kind of like set up with all this infrastructure for testing and stuff and kind of transitioned into covid and like honestly like Africa did awesome as a continent, as far as, you know, the pandemic goes and you look at, it's just crazy. Cause like the, the, you know, the first world did the worst, right. Or like the first we're world, not, like yeah, we're not like set up for it. We're not prepared for it. And we like did this weird thing where we like, didn't work. T- I, I just was mo- mind blown about this. Like we didn't work together at all. We just like pointed fingers. And to me, I was like watching this happen you know, cause you're sitting on the couch reading, watching the news and reading the news. And it's just like, dude, this is a pandemic we're talking about. Like, let's just like be transparent about everything. Like who, you know, who cares? Let's, let's work together as a society. And it was not that way. Yeah, no. Uh, the one good thing I think about, um, <clears throat> this whole thing is it's like really identified who's a dingus and who's not <laughs> right. It's been a good dingus filter. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like if like post pandemic, when everything is fine again, you know, if, you know, for instance, people like Squanto are going to be forgiven by all the people who think that what he did is 
really dumb or if you know those people are forever going to be like nah man you you fucked it during the pandemic you're a piece of shit (laughs) yeah 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 like our promoters gonna gonna more or less blacklist them because of that i mean i think that's that's harsh no one knows the right answer right so answer is definitely not to do 500 (laughs) posts. okay you and i know the right answer but Well, yeah. Also, like, how how much do you like put the agent on blast too, right? Because I mean, like, the same right. agent who booked um that show for him is like constantly booking shows for Dirt Monkey and Subtronics and Boogie T and shit like that too. So, uh, uh, Jake. Jake, yeah. So it's like wow. to, to what degree is you know he responsible? To what degree is the promoter promoter responsible? To what degree is his management responsible? Are, are all the um are all of those acts actively doing stuff? Because I know like he got put on blast, Squanto, but like. Uh, definitely is and yeah as far as i know and i might be wrong about this i thought subtronics and boogie t were also doing some drive-ins but drive-ins i think are okay but yeah they're fine uh, club shows in florida which i know dirt monkey's been doing a lot of are definitely not that's not cool yeah man it's fucked up yep hey man um it was sick chatting to you, but I, I should probably run. I've got to record a set today for this mousetrap thing. Yeah, uh, that's cool. Um, yeah, other than that, it was, uh, yeah, it was sick talking to you, man. Yeah, you too. You know, it's been a while. We've been great friends for a long time. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll catch up more than twice a year. <laughs> yeah, so I, I literally, I saw that Richard Devine thing and I was like, oh yeah, I should like uh, check in with Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man hopefully post covid i'll end up over in that side of the world or you you end up over this side yeah definitely man sick all right cheers all right see you later bill hey thanks for listening to the mr bill podcast these episodes are edited and uploaded by robert fumo you can also support the show get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash mr bill's tunes and becoming a patron uh please rate and review on itunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it and all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com thank you I know what I-